This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome. It's the final week of conversations for 2022. Now, normally it's too dangerous to have us in the same room at the same time, but I am here right now with Sarah Konoski. It's high risk but high excitement, Richard. There was a raging galaxy of highlights this year on Conversations and we've managed to choose five for you to enjoy this week. We have, and we're starting with my conversation with Stephen Walker. In the city of Moscow in the late 1950s, official vans could be seen cruising around picking up mongrel homeless dogs off the street. But the fate of these dogs was quite different than the other strays in Moscow. These dogs were sent to the far-off Soviet province of Kazakhstan, where they would be trained, then placed inside the nose cone of an intercontinental ballistic missile and then fired into space. But the voyage of these poor dogs was just a warm-up act for the Soviet Union's plan to send a human being into space for the first time and then have that person return safely to Earth. The Soviets knew they were in a race against the Americans and so they had to work fast and under a cloak of total paranoid secrecy. The program didn't officially exist until it triumphed in 1961 when a Russian cosmonaut named Yuri Gagarin became the first man to enter space and orbit the Earth. This was a stunning achievement that left the Americans gasping. But the true and totally bizarre story behind Yuri Gagarin's amazing voyage was kept under wraps for decades by the paranoid Russians. Stephen Walker is with me today. Stephen is a documentary maker and the author of Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. Hello, Stephen. Welcome. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. Now, the race to space was sparked by the launch of the Soviet satellite Sputnik, a little, little beeping orb the size of a grapefruit, launched in 1957. Tell me the effect that the launch of Sputnik had on the American leadership and the American public when it was, when it was shot into space. Well, in a single word, panic. I mean, when I say <laughs> panic, I mean absolute, total national panic, followed by outrage, followed by humiliation, followed by disgust, <laughs> followed by self-reproach, and then what the hell do we do now? Why? Why were they so terrified? They were terrified because this was an incredible technological achievement for its time. We're talking about 1957. We're talking about a time when the space race as such hadn't really kind of got going and where the Russians or the Soviets I should probably say who had lost somewhere between 20 and 27 million people in the second world war which is only a few years previously 12 years previously who had had their cities devastated a massive part of their country overrun and occupied by the Nazis who were considered not to be able even to build a working refrigerator properly <laughs> suddenly build this thing that gets into orbit and starts sending this maddening series of bleeps as it goes around the world at 18,000 miles an hour. And large parts of that world happen to include parts of the United States. And it's completely and absolutely unintersectable. And the fear was not just that this was a massive technological achievement on the part of the supposedly very backward Russians, when America was supposed to be kind of number one in the superpower game. But also fundamentally, if you can send something which is a 184 pound ball into space, which might itself be unarmed, what happens next? Photographic surveillance, nuclear bombs raining down from space. I mean, essentially, it looked to Americans like the end of everything. And I have to just quickly say, there was one guy in a newspaper, I think it was in the New York Times, who actually says that at this rate, if we're not careful, the United States will be part of the USSR by the mid-1970s. We have to do something. 
you've got a quote in here from Lyndon Johnson, who was a senator at the time and a very powerful one. And you've got, you've got him in the book saying, and I will do this in a southern accent, I'll be damned if I sleep by the light of a red moon. Soon they'll be dropping bombs on us from space like kids dropping rocks on cars from freeway overpasses. I think that really gets to the, the heart of it, doesn't it? So, so this is the, the fear and, and terror. But both nations had rocket programs at the time for their intercontinental ballistic missiles, you know, to strap a nuke on the front of them and, and potentially send them to attack the other. Where were the Americans in their rocket program? Were they ahead or behind the, the Soviets at that point, Stephen? The reality is that the Americans were in one sense ahead and in another sense behind. Let me explain what I mean. In the one sense they were ahead, it was because they had these incredibly sophisticated, for the time, nuclear weapons. And that meant the weapons were light. They were technologically very advanced for the time. And light weapons meant, relatively speaking, light rockets. So their rockets, or their missiles, which essentially is the same thing, were not as big and as heavy, as massive, and indeed as powerful as the Soviets, who had great big, sort of very, relatively speaking, old-fashioned, old-school, old technology, if you can use a term like that for the time, weapons. So what that meant was that the very advantage that the Americans had in their weaponry, meaning their light rockets, meant that they didn't have rockets that were really powerful enough to put human beings in space or these things into orbit, like great big, eventually great big satellites into orbit. The Soviets, with their great big heavy five megaton bombs, could literally replace those bombs with capsules containing first dogs and ultimately a human being and blast that human being into orbit. So this got the United States scrambling to set up its own space program, the Mercury space program. And you've got a photo in your book of the, of the launch, the media launch, I think it is, of the, the seven astronauts in their full uh, suits that look like something from Lost in Space, the, the TV series from the <laughs> 1960s, don't they? And it look, they look amazing. And these are the guys who are the... This is the story that was in The Right Stuff, the, the Tom Wolfe book and the movie as the result. When they unleashed this, this plan with these seven fabulous men, you know, Gus Grissom and John Glenn and, and the rest, what was the media launch like? How were they introduced to the world? As the greatest heroes that America had ever known. I mean, these guys... <laughs> These guys were celebrities overnight. April the 9th, 1959, there is a press conference in NASA's headquarters in Washington, D.C., and it's a, it's, it becomes a sort of mob fest. I mean, it really does. These seven rather different in some ways, test pilots, all of them, stand up in front of the press and the press go crazy. The cameras, the photographers, the press reporters, the whole thing. And very, very quickly, it mushrooms into this notion of these seven men who are essentially willing to die for their country. I mean, these are gladiators. You've got to think about it as a gladiatorial duel between the superpowers fought out in space, fought out in this new dimension, this exciting, dramatic, sci-fi almost new dimension of space. But the key thing about it is, is that these guys are so loved that an American lawyer called Leo de Orsi actually says, for no fee whatsoever, I will negotiate a deal with Life magazine, which at the time was, was the biggest selling circulation magazine in America, for an enormous amount of money, so that these guys can be on the pages of Life magazine, we can tell their stories and how they're training to be astronauts and all of these sorts of things, and they get this vast amount of money, they get their own private jets, wow. they're mobbed wherever they go. I mean, this is an incredible moment in American history. You're right in the heart of the Cold War, and here are America's Cold War heroes. And they really look like heroes. And the incredible thing is, all this stuff is on the news, it's on press conferences, on CBS, on NBC television. Of course, the Russians are watching everything. Right. So, so it's it's known to them. It's open. It's an, it's not a it's not a secret at all. No, far from it. Mm. But at the same time, how were their Soviet counterparts living? The candidate cosmonauts that the Soviet authorities had named to be part of their space mission. How were they living, Stephen? Well, they hadn't even started at that point because, of course, at that point, the Americans had this. They were ahead in having selected these people. Had flown yet and wouldn't actually fly for another two years but they had because they had all this training and all their rockets kept blowing up and all sorts of things so the russians are watching they go out and secretly select their own 
opponents, their own gladiatorial team, if you like. The Americans have seven, the Soviets choose 20 out of three and a half thousand potential candidates. I mean, it's all done in the strictest secrecy. It is so secret that the people being selected for the training do not even know and are not even told what they're actually being selected for. I mean, it's, it's that secret. When they are finally selected after a series of extraordinary tests that go on for months and months and are far more horrendous and, and horrific than anything that the right stuff guys, the Mercury 7 guys go through in America, when that finally happens and they go through this horrible kind of sadistic series of tests, they live a totally, to answer your question, totally different lifestyle. No private jets for them. They live in basically <laughs> apartment barracks. In, at the beginning, they're living on a gym floor. They have no car far from private jets, they have no cars. They've got, I think one guy had a motorbike, but he had to sort of give it up at one point. They have no TVs, they have no telephones, they have, you know, a single radio. You know, I mean, they go on the bus to places. I mean, they, it is a completely, <laughs> and, and no life deals for them. I mean, they live literally in the shadows and they live so much in the shadows. They live so much in the shadows that even when it becomes obvious what it is they're doing, they are not, even allowed to tell their own wives what it is they are training for. That is the level of paranoid secrecy in Russia at that time that we're dealing with. So this is a very different program. So the Americans have set up theirs, and in response, the Russians now want to do their own manned space program. Did the Americans know? I mean, they kept it under, under wraps, but was there even a whiff that the Soviets were planning their own put a man in space program? What they did, what the Russians did was they would send out little kind of teasy kind of newspaper reports from time to time. You know, very soon we will have a man in space. You know, they were kept, they were taunting the Americans to a certain extent. Um, but the details to the American public were really not known at all. I mean, it really wasn't. And even the Mercury 7, they knew they were racing against something because of these little hints that were coming out from time to time. And also because it was obvious, because not only had the Soviets obviously put Sputnik up, but they followed it up with another Sputnik, which had a dog inside, a famous dog called Laika. They followed it up with further satellites. They put more dogs up. Every time they had a success, they would trumpet it to the world. Every time they had a failure, they'd either pretend it was a success, which they did on several occasions, or they would keep it completely secret. And for decades, I mean, for decades, they would keep it secret. So there were little hints coming through. John Glenn, one of the Mercury 7 astronauts, who was the first American ultimately to orbit the Earth, he actually says, we don't know what we're racing against, but we're racing against something. Now, the difficulty of putting a rocket through the atmosphere into space is famously best illustrated by trying to get a pencil and try and lift it up on your fingertip by one end of the pencil. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult, and it requires uh, an extraordinary amount of science and engineering genius. And this brings us to Sergei Korolyov, the Soviet space program's chief rocket designer, who was a kind of genius, it seems. Tell me a bit about him and his story. What we have got, again, in this story of a duel is not just the two sets of gladiators, the guys who are going to be up there in space. It's the kind of designers and the geniuses behind them. And there's a duel there. On the American side, we have a guy called Werner von Braun, who's an ex-Nazi, who ends up ultimately building the Saturn V rocket that took men to the moon with Apollo 11. On the Soviet side, you get his opposite number, the guy you just mentioned, Sergei Korolyov. And this guy is really, I would say, the USSR's greatest state secret, another secret. He is so secret that he doesn't officially exist. And he doesn't officially exist because the Soviet authorities are terrified that a man with this expertise on rocket knowledge, this expertise about rocketry, about missiles, and about their space program, which he was effectively running, could be kidnapped or assassinated by CIA agents at any time. The reality is the CIA, American intelligence services, had no idea who he was, even though they were looking for him and trying to work out who he was in their lifetime. I've seen all these CIA documents where they're trying to work out who could be the mastermind <laughs> behind the Soviets, behind Sputnik, and they always get the wrong guy. They never get this Well, guy. given all of that, we all know how allergic the Soviet system was to bad news. I mean, that's been made really evident in that brilliant Chernobyl H HBO TV series. 
How hard did he find it to make the Soviet system work for him? He was brilliant at working the then leader, Nikita Khrushchev, of the Soviet Union. Khrushchev was a man who was, a, he was like a James Bond villain, basically. He looks like Blofeld. He looks exactly yes, like Blofeld. He looks like Blofeld. He's just no cat, I think. I think the cat's <laughs> the bit that's missing. But he is the kind of guy that used to bang his shoe at the United Nations when somebody was saying something unkind about the Soviet Union, to try and drown out the speaker's voice. And there's a wonderful expression once where he talks about Berlin, which at the time was divided, obviously, not yet quite by the wall. That came in August 1961. But it was a divided city, and he and Khrushchev famously referred to Berlin as the testicles of the West. He says, "When I want the West to scream, I squeeze on Berlin." That's what. He, that's the guy you're dealing with. Okay, this guy yeah. wants to be the in the running against Kennedy, the new young president of the United States, just comes into power in January 1961, and Korolev is his map because Korolev plays him. Korolev's dream is to, is to send men into space. That's his dream. He wants to get to, not just to orbit, he wants to get to the moon. He wants to get space stations. He wants to get colonies on Mars. He's a kind of Elon Musk of his day. And this guy knows that what Khrushchev wants are spectaculars with which to dazzle the West. So there is a marriage between them. You know, he knows that if he can give, he can feed Khrushchev these incredible spectaculars, which will, like Sputnik, that will sort of panic America, panic the West, and, and, and make them think, my God, maybe the Soviet Union is far more advanced than perhaps it actually is. This is something that Khrushchev will go for. And so there is this strange marriage between these two men. And as a result of his genius and of his success, he gets this you know, incredible privilege of a private hotline straight to the Kremlin, straight to Khrushchev's office. He can get things done. And that's what he does. So as you say, they, the Soviets had several ghastly missions with dogs. The Americans likewise used chimpanzees. Yeah. What fears did they have about putting a human in space? What do they think might go wrong once they put a human in a capsule and put him up above the atmosphere? Basically everything. I mean, you, it's very easy for us to kind of think, well, we, you know, we now go into the International Space Station, we know what happens. People didn't know what would happen fundamentally. That's why they sent these animals up, as you say. What would happen? Would your heart continue to beat? in the kind of, you know, the, the weightlessness of orbital flight. Would you be able to stand up to the terrific accelerations of a rocket launch without your body being completely crushed by the G-forces? Would you be able to swallow? Would your eyeballs burst? Wow. I mean, there were all sorts. Yeah, there were real fears about what could actually happen. And one of the really big fears, which they could not test with animals, was whether you'd go mad in space. There was li literally a body of, of, of academic work on the idea of something called space horror. Space horror being simply that if you are divorced from the planet and all life below you in the you know, absolute empty void, the void of space, would you actually go insane? And this is something that the Soviets took very, very seriously. And they had and some fascinating programs to test whether human beings in that kind of isolation would go crazy. And they were so concerned about this that when they designed the capsule, if you want to call it, which is called the Vostok capsule, in which the first human being would fly, they actually designed it in such a way that it was very, very difficult for the guy inside, the cosmonaut, to take control of the spaceship unless he actually accessed a secret code that he'd only be given in an envelope that was hidden somewhere inside the capsule. And he only had this, he only had this. They did this because they were terrified that he could go crazy up there, take control, manual control of the spaceship, and, you know, God knows what he would do. You know, would he kind of, you know, go to America with it? Would he... Would what, he... defect? Were they really worried he'd defect yes, and just somehow yes. drive the yes. space spot to America? <laughs> Yes, I mean, I mean that you might, but no, honestly, Richard, there was so much concerns about it that they were actually the KGB. I and mean, this is all the stuff that I find it's incredible stuff. The KGB, actually, in all the previous dog flights in the Vostok, the prototype that the man, the first human, would fly in, put bombs in it, and the bombs were on board these spacecraft, which were triggered to blow up with the dogs inside 
if by any chance something went wrong and the spacecraft headed by accident, by mistake, towards a capitalist country like the United States of America, because then the Americans get hold of all these Soviet secrets. And they seriously had a meeting. I've got the minutes for this. They seriously had a meeting <laughs> a few weeks before Gagarin was to fly in space to discuss whether to put a bomb on the human spaceship <laughs> so that if the guy went crazy, they'd blow him up. <laughs> Can you imagine if they said on the Apollo capsule with Neil Armstrong, we are going to put a bomb? I know, I know, the, and blow him up. And they also, the idea is, oh, we live in a workers' paradise; everything is perfect here. But we know the first chance you'll get, you're going to try and take this to America, aren't you? Absolutely, <laughs> it's all Absolutely. mad. I mean, this is crazy. It's all crazy. There was a whole committee that was set up to decide what the code would be, how it would be written out, the kind of envelope that would go in, and where precisely in the lining of the inner walls of the <laughs> space capsule this envelope would be inserted so that actually if a cosmonaut needed to find it, that would somehow prove that he was sane and could therefore control his spaceship properly. This is how crazy how screwed up the thinking was. Space horror. That was one of their really big fears. You touched on this a little earlier, but how different was the role of the American astronaut compared to the Soviet cosmonaut in terms of who flew the ship? So in America, the most important thing is the guys that were chosen for the Mercury 7 were all hotshot test pilots. And these Americans were all about test flying. It's in the right stuff. It's all about actually flying your vessel. And even though they came into conflict with the engineers who were designing a spacecraft that even they didn't really want, you know, pilots messing around with, nevertheless, there were manual controls. These controls were there and accessible. If you look at the cockpit of the Mercury capsule, it is crammed with instruments and dials and levers and God knows what. I mean, it really is a sophisticated cockpit for its time. If you look at the cockpit of the Vostok spacecraft, which is essentially just a sphere, it's kind of Wallace and Gromit. I mean, it's just a sphere. If you look at this thing, it looks like it looks like the interior of a 1950s Ford. I mean, it's got about five dials in it. I mean, there's basically nothing in there. There is a little radio that looks like a 1950s car radio, you know, with the little with the little knobs on both ends and the tuning dial across, which barely worked properly. They put in a tape recorder in there so that the guy inside would be able to record his experiences of what it was like to be the first human in space. But they didn't put enough tape in it and it ran out of tape halfway around the world. I mean, it's this crazy. So what you have is a situation where the pilot is the guy flying in America. That's the ideal. In the Soviet Union, the whole design of the spacecraft is about the pilot not being a pilot, about the guy sitting there, about not flying the mission, but enduring the mission. It was all about kind of, in a sense, taking control away, independence away, which, of course, is right at the heart of the Soviet, the Marxist-Leninist system. Don't question, don't challenge, obey, do as you're told, endure. So if he's not flying it, then his job description is to survive the mission. That's it, really. Yeah, and what a dangerous thing that was. You're talking about putting a human being for the first time on top of the biggest intercontinental ballistic missile in the world. You've got a missile that is 90% of fuel and 10% of just weight. And if this thing blows up, which many of them did, um, that's a pretty gruesome, horrific way to die. And that's just the start of the dangers. So although he's not flying it, the business of enduring it is huge. I mean, it's massive and really quite extraordinarily heroic, actually, in its own way. It certainly is. Uh, as you mentioned, though, nearly all the dogs who were sent into space died. Something went wrong with the mission. And I think only two survived and just barely in the end. One of them ran away. Oh, really? Yeah, one of them was actually taken. Actually, I think more survived than that. About 40-odd dogs died. Um, but one of them was actually on his way to the launch pad and managed to get away. And he ran away and they were stuck with a rocket fully fueled and no dog. And they had to find a dog and they managed to find one by the canteen. It was wandering around. This is a true story. And they found this dog wandering oh. around the canteen, stuffed him in a little kind of capsule. And 20 minutes later, he was in orbit. Or not in orbit, he was in space. 
Oh, he didn't survive, I'm sure, did he? Oh, the poor little we dog. Don't, some, some of them we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. So with all that, with all that terrible record of failure, what odds was the cosmonaut who went up in that thing given to survive the mission? Substantially less than 50%. So you are on your way to the launch pad and you know that there is less than a half chance of actually surviving this. I mean, imagine going into an operating theatre knowing that. Are you going to come out of it? You've got more chance of dying than not of dying. And it's not just dying, it's gruesome dying. I mean, being blown up is a, is a mercy. But what about being stranded in space where your oxygen supplies will run out and your food supplies will run out? Or what about the myriad other things that could go wrong that people didn't really know about because they hadn't ever sent a human being into space before? On the pad itself, they had a hilarious, in retrospect, escape system. I say escape system with kind of massive inverted commas. What would happen is this. If there was a fire on the launch pad at launch or just before launch, the idea somehow was that the cosmonaut would be catapulted without a parachute from his capsule 100 feet up, would fall onto a steel net below the rocket. Somehow the steel net would somehow, you know, contain his fall, at which point he was supposed to crawl across the net where there was a a very ordinary domestic bathtub waiting for him to climb into, and the bathtub would then be lowered to the ground, at which point he'd be taken off to an ambulance. But, you know, when a rocket with 90% fuel, 291 tonnes, blows up, there's not going to be any time to get into a bathtub, and he'd be dead straight away. Podcast. Broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Now, you talk about the huge pool of candidates in the Cosmonaut program. All of them were short. All of them had to be short. Can you explain why that was, please, Stephen? Absolutely, because you had to be short to fit inside this capsule. The <laughs> capsule basically comes in two parts. It is a sphere. I mean, literally just that. It is a sphere, like a ball, like a cannonball, in which one human being can sit. And then there's another bit attached to it, which contains, amongst other things, the engine, the braking engine, or the retro rocket, as we call it nowadays, which will get him home, slow him down to getting back from orbit back to Earth. And these two bits are actually joined together. So he's sitting inside, essentially, a ball. He's got three portholes. And that's sort of it. And these very, very basic navigation, bits of navigation equipment. But the, the capsule is, is, is small, and he's got to be small. Um, and then the whole kind of assembly is essentially placed where once the nuclear bomb would have gone. And that whole thing is what's blasted off into orbit. So they winnowed it down to one man. It was going to be Yuri Gagarin, who himself is a fascinating man. Tell me what you found out about the childhood of the first proper Soviet cosmonaut. Okay, so he's born in 1934, and he's born in this little village, which is about, oh, I don't know, 80 kilometres to the west of Moscow. Um, and it's a little village called Klushino. And it's, it's really got very little there. There are a few houses, including to this day, a reconstruction of his house, which I went to. And he's brought up by his father, his father Alexei, who's a carpenter, very much a kind of in this collective world, Sovietized world at the time of the 1930s, when Stalin is obviously the ruler of the Soviet Union. And at the age of seven, his world changes completely because the Soviets are invaded by Nazi Germany. In June 1941, in the biggest invasion force in history, across this hundreds of miles front, the Germans attack. And they roll their tanks and their troops across Western Russia. And within weeks, they reach Klushino, Yuri Gagarin's village. And within hours of reaching the village, they burn down half the village. They burn most of the cattle. They also uh, destroy the village school. And they kick the Gagarins out of their house. 
an SS unit goes into their house to live there. And they are allowed to live in the back garden, in the yard, essentially, by building, a, they're allowed to build a sort of bunker in the back garden. And this is where Alexei Gagarin's father's skills as a carpenter really come into play, because he literally builds this bunker in the back garden. And I've been to it. And it is horrible. You go down these stairs into a tiny little space, which is filled with beds. There's obviously no electricity down there at all. And the family live there for the next two and a half years in this place. So they're living in a bunker that they've had to dig themselves while the SS uh, have occupied their house. And the SS, of course, by ideology, regard them as subhuman. What did that mean for Yuri and his family? It meant in reality, when Yuri was seven or eight years old, his little brother Boris, who was five years old, um, happened to irritate or annoy one of the soldiers living in the house. And this soldier whisked in front of Yuri Gagarin's eyes, whisked his little brother Boris up, took out a scarf and tied the boy to a tree and hanged him from the tree in front of Gagarin's eyes. And Yuri Gagarin is looking at his brother Boris basically being strangled to death in front of him. And this soldier walks away. And Yuri Gagarin screams and screams and screams, tries to get his brother down, but he's too small. He can't can't get him down from from this tree. So he rushes over to this bunker where his mother is, and his mother comes rushing out and goes running across to this tree, this apple tree, and there his her son is hanging, her youngest son hanging from this tree, and manages to cut him down. And he actually lives, although he doesn't talk for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And Yuri Gagarin watches all of this. And his sister, his older sister, Zoya, says later, this changed everything for Yuri Gagarin. You know, he'd been this very bright, chirpy person, and there was a sort of a tougher, darker side that kind of came out as a result of witnessing this moment. And I do actually think that the man who has the ability to endure or even go through the possibility of what he did on that day in April the 12th, 1961, when he first went into space, when he went into space with all of the dangers attendant on that, that there's a kind of a grit that's in there. And I think you can roll that all the way back to that moment when he was seven years old and watch this man try to kill his little brother. Why was he picked to be the first cosmonaut out of all those other men? You know, it's a really interesting question, that. I mean, there were 20 guys, essentially, and then the numbers came down and down and down. And eventually, and it's it's a very moving story, this, it comes down to two men, a man called German Titov that most people never heard of, and Yuri Gagarin that many people have heard of. And what makes it very powerful is that these two men were both very, very good candidates and very, very good friends, and yet only one of them could be first. In the end, what Yuri Gagarin had over this guy, German Titov, was not so much ability. It was that he was the perfect poster boy for the communist Soviet system. This isn't just about the technological achievement. This is about showing to the world in the middle of the Cold War that the USSR, its system, its ideology, its ways, and of course, its technology are best better than America, better than the decadent West. It is It is literally at the centre. This is not just a story about an incredible adventure into space. It is actually a crisis in the 20th century in which, although we know which way the world went, it could go either way in 1961. So whoever was actually selected to undergo this extraordinary mission on behalf of the Soviet Union, had to be perfect, or as near perfect as possible. He didn't have to be a great pilot for all the reasons we talked about. He just had to be the right look. And he was the right look. His father was a carpenter. He built his own house. He had the right face, Yuri Gagarin. He was very good looking. He had a fantastic smile. He was charismatic. Um, He was able to win people over. He had enormous charm, quite clearly. And people generally really liked him. He worked very hard. He wasn't frightened of the world. He was the kind of person that could be pushed out there 
and show the Soviet Union in its best possible light. So even though Titov was a very, very close run, there were problems with Titov's biography. His father was a school teacher, which is too bourgeois. He was really fond of quoting Pushkin, whereas Gagarin wasn't interested in any of that stuff. He was, um, he was more independent. He was less collective. Titov didn't quite fit the bill. And also Titov's first name was German, which sounded too much like German, which was <laughs> Germany, which was the Second World War. And that was a problem. That was a problem oh. too. So what you have, what you have is the perfect poster boy. But the selection is only finally made three or four days, incredibly, before the flight. Now, they've been racing with the Americans all this time. The Americans have been playing catch-up under... Hitler's former chief rocket scientist, Werner von Braun. And so that pushed the Soviets to go as quickly as they could. He was selected for the mission. Mm. Could he even tell his mother what he was doing? Could he? What could he tell his mother before he went on the mission? Well, <laughs> I discovered an incredible letter that he wrote to his mother where she said something about, you know, I think I quoted somewhere, but she says something like, where you, um, he says, I have to go away somewhere for a little while. And she says, well, where are you going? He says, well, it's a long way away. <laughs> they knew nothing. So they're about to put him on the bus and send him to the launch pad. Tell me about the last minute adjustments to his spacesuit before they put him in the rocket, Steve. Well, they literally are about to send him out. I mean, everything is this whole rocket is all fueled up and ready to go. He's got his spacesuit on, everything. And they suddenly panic because they suddenly think, what happens if uh, he lands off course, and he is mistaken as an American agent parachuting down in the middle of Russia somewhere. Would he be attacked with pitchforks or killed, even? <laughs> and they're so worried about this, and nobody had thought about this before, because everything is rush, 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 rush. We got, they kept talking about the Americans are right on their backs. And, I mean, this, this race you know, comes down to the wire. We're talking two or three weeks between the two first, the American, the Russians first, and the Americans second. There's two or three weeks in this. It's that tight. So they're going, going fast. So they think, what do we do? And suddenly somebody comes up with a brainwave. Why don't we paint the word CCCP or USSR on his helmet? And then somebody says, well, wait, wait, where? We have to find some paint from somewhere. And then they find some red paint. And then they get some guy who's apparently, I mean, I have a quote somewhere, who's very, very, very steady with his hand. And he paints CCCP on his helmet. And off he goes. And off he goes. So now they think, well, at least if he ends up in the wastes of Siberia, as many of the dogs had, by the way, and some crazed peasants think, my God, this is, we'll get a bounty, we'll get an award from the Soviet state if we can kill him, um, that he might have a chance. So they push him on board the spacecraft with the paint still wet on oh, the CCCP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guy says, I mean, Gagarin, I think, says, the paint's still wet. And the guy says, we haven't got time for that with the bus is waiting. History is waiting. Let's go. So how emotional was the farewell to Yuri once they'd taken him to the launch pad? It was very, very, very emotional. Basically, everyone was, was crying and hugging and embracing to the point where they thought they were never going to get off in time. And they're all crying. And there's a wonderful moment where, where Titov, the guy that was number two, who had to also go through the rigmarole of wearing a spacesuit just in case, you know, Yuri Gagarin tripped and fell on his face. You know, there's a wonderful moment where they try to embrace and they're both wearing their space helmets and their space helmets clang together and, and they all start laughing. It's, it's sort of glorious and awful and Russian and so un-American. It's rather wonderful, actually. And finally, he waves goodbye and he's taken up to his spacecraft on top of the rocket. So they get the countdown, the rockets fire up, there's this massive roar and he's off the ground and he's hurtling through the atmosphere and he gets up into space, into the glorious microgravity of space. He's done it. What was he recording about what he was seeing? You've heard the tape. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. How does he talk about what he's seen through his little porthole? Amazing. Well, he's, he's, it takes 11 minutes for him to leave the ground and to get into orbit. And there is a moment where there's complete silence and he suddenly feels that his body is lifting up from his seat against the straps that are holding him in. 
And then he looks out of this porthole to his right. It's just above his head on the right-hand side. And he sees something that no living organism on our planet has ever seen. The Earth sliding through his window. And he's mesmerized by it. He's mesmerized by the color. It's the colors that get him, the, the blues that are just, I mean, so radiant and so unfiltered. And the earth slides past his window because he's doing a very slow dance, essentially. He's spinning, but very, very slowly through space. And the earth slides past the window and suddenly the whole of his little cockpit, that little sphere that he's sitting in, is filled with this beautiful light that is, in a way, almost heavenly. I mean, you can start talking like this, but he uses, doesn't use the word heavenly, but it's radiant. And it fills with this light from the sun. And then the sun, it's like a dance, goes past his window and he sees the stars. And there are so many more stars than anyone could ever see, even on the clearest nights on Earth. And he starts speaking into his microphone. And some of these words reach Earth and are recorded. Some of them end up on that bit of tape recording that he's got. And But the exhilaration, I can see the Earth, I can see the Earth. And he says over and over again, it's so beautiful, it's so beautiful. The colors are so beautiful. This is the first, the first human being to look down upon the beauty of our world. So no space horror then. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's this lovely ecstasy and instead, which is wonderful. And this, in a way, I think, is the benefit of the Soviet approach from the astronauts' point of view. You know, people on the Apollo mission and the Mercury mission, they all had checklists to go through and stuff to do and they had to fly the ship. He's not. He's a passenger. He has the time to enjoy it. Here's the time to take it in. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, I don't think he would have put it like that, but I think it is true what you say, Richard, because the reality is he's out of radio contact a lot of the time. We're very used to the idea of all those beeps you get at the end of every message. And you can, you know, Apollo 13 even, everything is going wrong, but they're always able to communicate unless they're on the black, the back side of the moon, the dark side of the sometimes called of the moon. But in this instance, the radio networks were so primitive that a lot of the time he's got no one to talk to. And he lit, he turns down the light inside his capsule and he drifts at 18,000 miles an hour across the world. The first thing that happens is 25, 30 minutes after leaving Kazakhstan, which is where the rocket launch site is, and it's morning for him when he leaves. He leaves at nine o'clock in the morning, Moscow time. 20, 30 minutes later, he's entering the night. And he's already on his way down the Pacific, heading south towards South America. And then 30 minutes after that, he's watching a dawn, which comes up with incredible suddenness. So one minute it's dark, and then suddenly the sun just rises above the Earth's horizon. And bang, it's the dawn, and it's light, and it's day. But he is alone. He turns down the light, and he drifts around the world at 10 times the speed of a rifled bullet. And he's looking at all of it. He's able to cross barriers, borders, continents that as a Soviet citizen, he would never have got to see. You know, in that contained prison, essentially, of the Soviet Union, he would never have had the opportunity to go to visit all these countries. But from above, there are no borders. And it's just the world. It's just all of us. Meanwhile, 55 minutes into his flight, the Soviet News Service announced the success of the mission before he'd even landed. What happened when that was announced across the Soviet Union? What was the public reaction? It was instantaneous. Tens of millions of people are hearing this when the broadcast is made. And the response is ecstatic. Within 20 minutes, there are people gathering out in the streets. There are cheers. There are people dancing. There's music playing. There's, you know, who... And, of course, who is this guy, Gagarin, you know? But for his family, who first discover that their son is flying in space when this broadcast takes place, this is hell, because he's still up there. And is he going to get down again? Is he going to get down safely? He hasn't even got back yet. And the Soviet nation is already celebrating the achievement of their Russian son before he's even come home. It made me think when I read that that 
you know, whether he's landed successfully or not, they were going to produce someone called Yuri Gagarin at the end of the day and, <laughs> and say, well, here he is, he, he did a great job. Oh, it was amazing up there. I had a lovely time. <laughs> now, you, you wrote that his re-entry was, was a terrifying ordeal. It was torturous. Yeah. He suffered terrible pain. G-forces that were ten, made him 10 times his normal weight caused the blood to drain from his eyeballs, but then he was popped out into a parachute, barely, and... Tell me about where he landed and, and what that was like for him to return to Earth. Well, he, there, was a, there was a kind of a, a <laughs> another one of those Soviet lies, which was that he had to be popped out of his capsule and land by parachute, like a sort of, you know, ejection from a jet fighter for like, if you sorry, he had to have that because otherwise, if he didn't have it, he would have killed himself because the capsule was too heavy for him to land inside it. But unfortunately, in order for the Soviets to claim the world record of being <laughs> the highest human being in space, being a Soviet, they had to lie and pretend that he'd actually landed, because this was the rule, back in the vessel in which he'd taken off. So they just lied. They just told the world that he landed back in the vessel. In fact, he parachuted. But because of a whole series of things that had gone wrong, he was way off course. I mean, hundreds of miles off course. And by the most incredible coincidence, he found himself parachuting over the place where he had studied foundry work. Good God. This is absolutely true. In college. <laughs> and then he recognised the town where he'd been a student. And there it is beneath his feet. So he knew where he kind of was roughly. And he eventually lands in this potato field. <laughs> I mean, this is so far away from any kind of NASA splashdown. He lands in a potato field, and the only two people there to greet him is an old lady and her granddaughter who are planting potatoes. <laughs> and they look in horror as this guy arrives in an orange from the sky in an orange spacesuit and run away because they think they, you know, and he's got CCTP. He's got CCTP dripping, yeah. dribbling so off his helmet. Dribbling. Well, it's probably dried by now. And he's got to the point where he say he waves and no, no, I'm Soviet. But it doesn't sound right because it's inside his helmet. So they, this is all described. I've got this wonderful interview with a granddaughter called oh, Rivia who describes, and, she, and so they run, and they finally he manages to entice them to come back. He calls them over and he manages to convince them that he's actually a Soviet and he's and he's just landed from space. And they're probably the only two people in the whole of the Soviet Union who haven't been listening to the radio. So they don't know anything about this at all. And then he says, I need to get to a phone. Have you got a phone? And they said, well, there's one in the nearby collector village, but you'll need a horse to get there. And we can saddle up a cart and a horse for you. This is absolutely true. So this guy, has he's been travelling around the whole world. He's gone around the southern tip of South America and up across the whole of Africa at ten times the speed of a rifle bullet, and now he needs a horse and a cart to get to nearby phone. You couldn't make this that's, up. That's amazing. That's sensational. That's great. But did that happen? Did he have to climb into a horse? To no. At the last moment, so there are all these people out looking for him because they have absolutely no idea where he actually is um, because he lands off course. And finally, this, this guy that runs an artillery unit finds him. And they all pose for sort of photographs and then they kind of whisk him off to the local artillery barracks where he is mobbed because these people have been hearing about this guy who's in space and this was the beginning of a 24-hour period in which he becomes probably the most famous human being on the planet. There was a cult of Yuri Gagarin that sprang up in the Soviet Union after his successful mission. You write that he was rewarded with a, a larger apartment, which was a huge thing by Soviet standards. He was given all the latest domestic appliances. He was given a car. Several pairs of shoes. Did he? But did he continue to play a role in the space program after his return? Well, what he did was he went all the way around the world to lots and lots of different countries. And he was very well liked where he went. He had tea with the Queen, actually, in London. He was paraded everywhere, a bit like the Apollo 11 astronauts would be in 1969. And it sort of really messed with his head. I mean, he became addicted to drink um there's a lot of womanizing that went on you know his marriage was quite threatened actually at one point and he was in the space program effectively but he was too valuable to be sent to space and then in 1967 his best friend a man called komarov was asked to fly on the first mission of the what we now know today as the soyuz capsule but at that point it was very undeveloped and this guy, Komarov, whom Gagarin loved, 
was going to take the first mission, even though the Soyuz was a mess, it was not ready to fly, it was still very experimental. And Gagarin offered to take Komori's place. And of course he couldn't because he wasn't allowed to fly. And so Komarov took it and it was horrific. Everything went wrong and the parachute system failed in his return. At that point it was attached to the capsule. And this guy Komarov slammed into the ground and was killed. And Elena Gagarina, Yuri Gagarin's daughter, who I got to know quite well and interviewed several times, describes how it was the only time she saw his father cry. And he was angry. He was really angry. And he tried to take this up at the highest levels. He said it was essential that the story of what happened was put out into the world, that we couldn't lie about it. I mean, he really made a noise about it. And then, almost exactly a year later, he was flying on a training jet mission with a very experienced instructor and his plane crashed and he was killed along with the instructor. And nobody to this day has satisfactorily explained how or why that actually happened. And so of course it gave rise to huge conspiracies. I mean, was it the KGB, was it this, was it that, or was it just an accident? We'll never know. All we know is, was that there was a crash and he was killed a year later. Despite everything, and we have, I've, I've certainly laughed, got a few laughs out of this story. Nonetheless, I think the overwhelming impression I have, at least about him anyway, Yuri Gagarin, is, is how heroic all this was. What do you think, Stephen? I think it's extraordinary. I think they're all pretty heroic, actually. This is an incredible achievement because it is really the beginning of something that we've only really, a journey we've only just started. It is the beginning of our journey from the planet. And it starts with this incredibly brave man seeing wonders for the very first time. This is a step for humanity. It's incredible to think this really happened in this way. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, Stephen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. Stephen Walker is the author of Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Louisa Lim, I think you're going to love my new podcast. It's called The King of Kowloon, and it's the story of a Hong Kong graffiti vandal and of the city itself. He's the king, he's the king. Yes, he's the king. He was completely mad, completely bonkers. He was incoherent. He was certifiable. There's a piece of memories within all of us. For my generation, we all had a piece of him in our mind. He wrote of dispossession when no one else did. He became a celebrity artist, a fashion inspiration, a muse, and then a most unusual icon. When the city exploded in protest, its people did what their king had done, covering the city's walls again with protest calligraphy. The city was in a fight for its life. You can hear it by searching for The King of Kowloon on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.